All right, I don't know what you think of when you think of the word power. There are a few pictures that come to mind for me. First, lightning. A couple weeks ago, there was a big storm that rolled through just to the north of us, and I don't know if you got to see it, but it was just constant lightning, just nonstop. It was amazing. It made me wish that I lived out in the country so I could get a bit better view of it. I was outside watching it because my phone went off warning me that the end of the world was about to happen because of weather, and so I went out to tie the trampoline to the magnolia tree, which is what we normally do, ever since we first moved here, and the trampoline went from the backyard to that open lot over there, upside down, during a storm. I also think of tornadoes, incredible power in a tornado. Yakuza's, I feel for you guys, still got the blue tarp. Still working with the insurance. Um, you know, if you want us to go protest in front of your insurance company, you just let us know. We'll, we'll do what we can to help you guys there. But, man, so much power in a tornado. Maybe you think of something like this next picture, a 69 Camaro with twin turbos, supercharger, and nitro. A lot of power there. I have to wonder how you see where you're going, though. This seems rather dangerous to me. <laughs> a little crazy. Lots of power, though. Maybe you think of high-voltage power lines. Uh, A few years ago, we were riding as a family. We were riding our bikes along the bike trail that goes along the canal up in Ogles County, and there's a part where it passes underneath some of these high-power, high-voltage lines, and it was a particularly dry, low-humidity day, right? The kind of day where you get lots of static electricity. And as you come up to the power lines, you can hear them buzzing even louder than normal, right? And as we're riding underneath them, we discovered that unless we very intentionally kept our hands only on the rubber handguards, if we let them get too close to the, like the metal of the, of the handlebars, we would get zapped. And so you're just riding along, and oh, ah, oh ride fat, faster to get past the the field of power coming off of those power lines. What about this? Anybody know what this particular machine is? It's got a name. It's called the Big Muskie. Good good job. Amazing. What? I know, but I wanted to see if you could read. So this this was, at one point, this was the largest land-based mobile machine in the world. There were bigger machines, either on the water or that were stationary, but this was the largest one that could walk. If we go to the next picture, you can see, yeah, this is a giant vehicle. Now, it didn't like move on treads. It actually moved on feet. It would just slowly walk itself. It was designed to dig up coal, and it did a pretty good job of that. It could dig a million tons of coal Per year, itself weighing 27 million pounds, and it was uh, powered actually by electricity. So it dig up the coal, the coal would take came to the power plant, turned into electricity, and fed back to the machine to dig up more coal. It ran on a giant custom extension cord that carried 13,800 volts of electricity. It consumed basically the same amount of electricity as a city of 100,000 people a lot of electricity. It was a giant machine, a lot of power. Now, it's been dismantled, but down near Cumberland, Ohio, there's a little roadside park where you can go and visit the bucket, 
Here's a picture of our three girls in the bucket. This is a giant bucket. You can put three full-size, I'm sorry, four full-size buses inside the bucket. It is huge. Lots and lots of power. But as many of you know, even the power of a machine like that is nothing compared to the next picture. A young child throwing a tantrum, right? The, the power that a, that a screaming child can have over a room, over the parents, is just amazing. Now, I, I witnessed an interesting conversation last night. We were at the Maria Stein Country Fest, and I was sitting at the table waiting for Jen and the girls to make it through the line to get our, our hamburgers. And there's a family next to us having a conversation. So it was a young mom and dad having a conversation with a child that I would assume was about three years old. And they were bargaining with the child, pleading with the child to behave, to be calm. Um, please, you know, don't throw a tantrum because we need to stick around. We need to be able to have a couple more beers. So if you would please just be calm so that we can have some more beers, we would really appreciate that. And I thought, what an interesting conversation that is. And what, what is being taught to the child as he is negotiated with for that? But that negotiation is happening because there's a fear of something like this happening. There's great power even in a cute little face and mouth. Today we're going to read in Ephesians 1 about a different, thankfully, different kind of power. You can find this on page 976 in the Pew Bibles. We're going to read the passage that we read last week, and then we're going to continue on with the second half of it. This is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So that's what we read last week. We said that the main idea of this is that we have a sure hope that is based only on the personal work of Christ and proclaimed to us through the scriptures. Verse 18 there tells us that we're called to a hope. What is that hope? Go back. Verses before it, we read it in context with this, we realize that that hope is the inheritance that we are expecting. Specifically, that inheritance is eternal life with God. That is the thing that we're hoping for. And Paul wants us to know that hope. That's the main verb in this long sentence here. We know the hope, not just hope for the hope, not wish for the hope, but to know the hope. And last week we saw that the, really the only way that we can know this hope is through God's Word, the Bible. Today we pick up in that same sentence in verse 19, still working off the same verb, know. So we're to, we want to know the, the hope that we have what else are we to know? Verse 19, and know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You say, well, that's a lot. Last week's verses and this week's verses all one giant complicated sentence in the original Greek. We are to know the hope and we are to know the power. Let's look at this in bite-sized chunks. Verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? So God is, is working a power and Paul wants us to know that this isn't just any power, that this is a great power. There's an extreme greatness to this power. Even more than just calling it great, he wants us to know that it is immeasurable. You can't measure it. You can't get a tape measure big enough. You can't get a scale big enough. Nothing that we have ever encountered, no power that we have ever come across or comprehended compares with an immeasurable power. Can't even describe it. We don't know how to quantify it. That's what he's talking about. Nothing compares to it. Nothing is in the same league as this. Think about the power of the sun or the billions of other stars that many of them are even more powerful than our sun or the power of a nuclear explosion Think of the power of a hurricane. None of these can even help us understand. They can't serve as a ruler to help us gauge the power of God. Because his power, according to this, is immeasurable. Paul goes on and says, according to the working of his great might. Now if we take what we just read with this part here, according to the working of his great might, in verse 19 alone, there are four different specific words used to describe or name this power. One of those words is dunamis, which is the word that we get our word dynamite from. Another word is energia, which is where we get our word energy from. And there's two other kind of abstract, obscure ones. But why would Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use four different words for power in one verse? It's because he's just trying to help us understand that there's, there's a power that is immeasurable. There's a power that we can't understand. It is so much greater than what we have experienced we don't know what to do with it. He's not just talking about a general power, though. He's not talking about like the general power of creating or sustaining, holding together the universe. He's talking about a very specific power. He says that this power is toward us who believe. Now, that sounds a little dangerous. If there is a power that is immeasurable, that we cannot quantify, that we cannot understand, and it is directed towards us. What does that mean? I mean, if even riding my bike under those high-power lines zaps me, what does an immeasurable power directed at me do? So verse 19 is telling us that this immeasurable power is focused. You think about a, a flashlight with a head that turns like an old mag light, and you kind of focus it down. Power is still coming out, but it's focused into more of a beam. It's constrained. I know it's weird. We just said this power is immeasurable, and yet we're talking about it being focused or constrained. That's what 
text is telling us here. What is its focus? What is its constraint? What is it directed toward? It is directed toward those who believe, specifically those who have believed the gospel, those who have been born again, those whom Jesus has saved. The immeasurable power of God is directed towards you if you are in Christ. So there's this clear line. This particular power is directed towards those who believe, which means it's not directed towards those who do not believe. There's a, there's a different power of God directed toward those who do not believe. But if we are in Christ, this great power that Paul is talking about is focused at us. It doesn't make you, doesn't make you a, a superhero. You're not suddenly faster than a speeding bullet or able to leap over tall buildings in a single bound. What does this power do? What has it accomplished? Verse 20. That he worked, the Father, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Ah, so we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And if this is power working in us, then Paul is pointing to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus leads to our resurrection. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that we are not held by death. We are set free from death and the grave. That's the big picture of what he's talking about here. The Father raised Jesus from the dead with this great power. What happened after that? Jesus ascended to heaven, and the verse tells us, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this is a picture of the throne room of heaven. It's a metaphorical way of thinking about the authority and the power of God. It's an ancient royal imagery meant to show us that Jesus reigns in heaven as a co-regent, as a co-ruler, as a co-king with the Father. Now, there is an authority structure there. Jesus willingly submits himself to the Father. But the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they are all God. They are all fully God. They are of the same essence. We might say they're made, although they're not made, made of the same stuff made of godness equally with each other. This little section here, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, is a statement of the lordship, the rulership of Jesus. In America, we have a hard time with that. We don't have a king. We have a representative democracy, a democratic republic, where technically we are the sovereigns who elect people to govern on our behalf, but we're the bosses of them. And so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. What does it mean to have a sovereign, to have a Lord, to have a, an ultimate authority that we submit to? We are quick and eager to take Jesus as Savior, save us from our sins, save us from hell. But we we often hesitate at the idea of bowing before Jesus as Lord. But the New Testament really doesn't give us that option. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He's not Savior or, and maybe later, Lord. He's both. We as Americans, we're kind of naturally rebellious. We want to you know, break the, the chains that bind us. 
get rid of the, the shackles that hold us back. And, and when we think about that in our relationship with God, that gets us in trouble as individuals and as churches. There are thousands of churches in America and in the Western world that in recent decades have essentially said, we do not want to submit to the lordship of Jesus. We'll take him as savior, we'll take him as teacher, we'll take him as miracle worker, we'll take him as an example to follow a great moral person. But as far as bowing to him as Lord, we'd rather do things our way. It's made a mess of the church and Western society. I wonder if you, like I tend to, if you're using Jesus for forgiveness, but you don't want to submit to him as Lord and ruler of your life. This picture of him seated at the right hand of the Father is meant to remind us that he is Lord over all creation. If we go to verse 21, it continues on with the same sentence. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, this isn't, this isn't just poetry on Paul's part. He's trying to make the case of the absolute lordship and rule of Jesus, that, that he's above all rule, because he rules, laws, laws, or just the rule of a person or a government. He's above all that. He's above all authority. So every authority that you've ever been under in your life, whether it was your parents or teachers or a boss or elders or a police officer or the law or a president, every authority you've been under is under Jesus. It doesn't seem like that. It seems like a lot of people are trying to assert themselves as the ultimate authority. But in reality, Jesus is over all that. He's, he's even over the natural laws and authority, like the law of gravity. Jesus is over that. He demonstrates that as he walks on water out to the boat in the gospel stories. He gets to pause gravity. We don't get to do that. We try, but it doesn't work out very well. So authority, power, dominion, that's the idea of a, a zone of authority, a, a king, a dominus, rules over a dominion. Is there any place where you can go to escape the authority of Jesus? There isn't. You could try to hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden after they sinned. It didn't work for them. It doesn't work for us either. You could even be damned to hell and eternally separated from God, yet you would still be under the authority of God. There's nowhere outside of the dominion of Christ. And then the last thing in this list is the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is raised up. That's what exalted means, over every name that is named. Now, that's not talking about the inherent value of the name Jesus. You could name your child Jesus or Jesus, and that does not make that child's name above every other name. But the name of Jesus, the man that we're talking about here, points back to, is a reflection of, is the summary of who Jesus is. Sometimes we use this in 
uh, way we say it. he has a good name in town. That means he's respected. That doesn't mean his name is respected or his name is good. It means his reputation, who he is, is good. And that's the same way that the Bible is using this here. Who Jesus is. And the name is the summary of that. The name is above all other names. And notice the time frame there. It's not just a season. It's permanent. It's eternal. It says that it's now, that is this age, and it's the age to come in the future. Some of you may be feeling some anxiety about the course that our nation or our world is on. You may be looking at things going around and going, what is happening? Are we in the end times? Is the world falling apart? Is Jesus going to come back soon? What are the threats? What should I be looking for? How am I going to recognize you know, the Antichrist? You may have all kinds of things going through your mind about this. And let me just assure you, even from this passage, Jesus is Lord over all of it. That if you belong to him, you are secure in him. And you don't have to get it all figured out. You don't, you don't have to think you have a plan about how things are going to come together and what's going to happen then and what's going to happen after that. Jesus is Lord over all of that now and, in the words here, the age to come in the future. He's sovereign over everything. And now we start to get into the grand finale of chapter 1. Verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So we've got two body parts mentioned. We've got feet and we've got a head. It says that all things are put under the feet of Jesus. That doesn't mean like he's trampling on us or anything like that. That's just a way of saying again, he is above everything. He is authority over everything. All things are under him, under his feet. This is the way that it has been from the beginning. For he was active and present in creation. John chapter 1 tells us that everything that exists, all that was created, was created through Jesus. So from the very beginning, everything is under his feet. Even though it was from the very beginning, it has not always been so. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a little hint of it there, right? It says, he put all things under his feet. Well, if he created all things, he's ruled from the beginning, how can we say that the Father puts things under Jesus' feet? What happened? Consider these words from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, or we would say, in the nature, the essence of God. He is fully God. Did not count equality with God, equality with the Father, a thing to be grasped or clung to or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, God the Son, fully God, humbled himself, voluntarily humbled himself, taking on flesh to become one of us. Now, he remained fully God. He added to his God nature human nature. 
fully God, fully man. Here's where our math doesn't work out so well. By adding his human nature to his God nature, according to Philippians, he actually subtracts, he empties himself. Now, how can he be fully God and yet be emptying himself? How does this all work? Well, that's a good mystery that you can wrestle with and try to figure out. But Philippians is clear. Jesus, God the Son, emptied himself, taking on flesh to be with us, emptied himself, taking on, adding to subtract. He did this voluntarily to be one of us, to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. He deserves all rule. He deserves all authority. He now has it. But he willingly submitted himself as a man who walked around, got all dusty and dirty, who had to eat, who had to use the bathroom. The God of the universe submitted himself to that in order to be one of us, in order to save us. The author of authority humbled himself, intentionally humbling himself, not not becoming weak. Jesus was not weak. You see that when he calms the storm? You see that when he casts the demons out of people? When he feeds the 5,000? There is there's no weakness in Jesus. But there is humility. He lowered himself. But he didn't stay lowered. Just like he didn't stay dead. Father raises him from the dead, raises him to heaven, seats him at the right hand of the Father. He is now reigning from heaven. If we go back to that Philippians passage that we were just walking through, the next couple verses, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Sounds just like the Ephesians passage, right? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus has been exalted. He's been raised up by God the Father. His name is above all other names. All creation will bend the knee to him. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the universe. That is guaranteed. Every tongue will confess this. But that's not quite the end of Ephesians 1. The finale is still coming. So let's go back to Ephesians 1, verse 22 and 23 again. He put all things under his feet, gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Jesus is not just Lord over all creation. He's not just distantly ruling from the throne room of heaven, far off, separated, He is intimately connected, according to this verse, to what? To the church. He is the head of the church, which is his body. This metaphor is repeated throughout the New Testament. We are told that we, the church, are the body of Christ. Now, there are other parts in the New Testament that work that out, like in the functioning of the different bodies of the parts of the body, where uh, you may be the hand, you may be the foot, myself, and probably the left butt cheek, but we all have different roles within the body, right? 
That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not worried about the roles and you do your thing and I do my thing and we all build up. He's not talking. He's primarily looking at the fact that the body has a head. The body is defined by the head. Now this makes sense. The head is the control center. The hand doesn't say to the head, to the mind, I want you to do this. The mind says to the hand, this is what you're going to do. Just as with a physical body, if you have a body without a head, it's not much use. Think of a, a beheaded body on the ground. You could maybe quickly harvest it for some organs to help with another body, but other than that, it's not any good. It's going to decompose, it's going to be eaten by worms, it's going to go back to the dust. If we are detached from our head, that is the situation that we find ourselves in too. I know this is, this is graphic and kind of ugly, we need to recognize that we are dependent, as the body, we are dependent on the head. Now look at that last part. 22 and 23, at the end of 22, I'm just going to break it so that it kind of flows more easily for us. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is whose body? Jesus' body. And who fills all in all? Jesus. But we get that. We understand that. Jesus is the source of everything. He's the fulfillment of everything. Everything starts with him. Everything is pointing towards the fulfillment that he has planned for it. He fills us. He fills us with the Spirit. He fills us with purpose. He fills us with meaning. He calls us. We are dependent on him. He fills us. But look what it says in the middle there. Church is his body, and what? The fullness of him. What is that supposed to mean? I thought we were talking about Jesus fills us. The end of the verse says, he fills all. Fills all in all. All of the allness he fills. But the body, which is the church, is somehow the fullness of him. What is that supposed to mean? sounds a little backwards. Sounds like it could even be blasphemous, right? If Jesus is the source, if Jesus is the fulfillment, how could the church somehow be the fullness of Jesus? Does this mean that without, without us, the church, that Jesus is, is somehow lacking? If we're going to use the body metaphor, we could say, well, just as a body without the head isn't much use, a head without the body isn't much use either, but that would be taking the metaphor way beyond what is intended because Jesus, as fully God, is entirely complete. He is full himself. He lacks in nothing. He needs nothing. He's not dependent on us for anything. We need him. We are dependent on him. We need him to fill us. He is fully God in and of himself. By essence, by definition, he is God. And he doesn't need anything. But 
What if we thought in terms of relationship rather than just in terms of essence or substance? Because in substance, Jesus is complete. He's self-contained. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. He's dependent on none of us. But in relationship, Jesus chooses to love us and to want us. Now here it would be helpful to switch our metaphor to another one that's coming later in Ephesians, the idea of the church as the bride of Christ. Not just the body of Christ, but the bride of Christ. Now, if you're married, you know that you are a complete and autonomous person on your own. You are fully a person, whether you're married or not. But when you are married to another person, there is this sense that that marriage, that other person, it somehow completes you in a strange way. Like you, were, you were fully a person beforehand, but now you're, you're united with another person and you're somehow completed more. You're complemented. You are you're changed. It somehow fills you in a certain way. I think that's what we're meant to understand here in this confusing part at the end of verse 23. Kent Hughes is a pastor and professor and author that I respect, and he, he says this, the church, and then he's going to quote from Ephesians here, is the fullness, then he's going to make his little parentheses, that is the complement or that which fills. So the church is the fullness of him who fills everything, meaning the entire universe. The church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The church is that which fills up Christ who fills up the universe in every way. If Christ is filling up the universe in every way, how could there be any filling of him with the church? Later in Ephesians, we get this idea, the, the, the bride of Christ spelled out for us. We'll look at this in a few weeks, Lord willing. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. I think the, the key to understanding what's being talked about in Ephesians 1 is this idea that comes from us later in Ephesians 5. It's this idea of the relationship that Christ has with the church. Without the bride, Christ is not a groom. He's still God. He's still ruler over the universe, but he's not a groom unless he has a bride, right? Without the body, the head is, in a sense, not complete. Without the sheep, the shepherd is not complete in his relationship, in his role. Not in his person or his substance. If you've got a shepherd and you've got sheep and you take all the sheep away, the shepherd is still fully human. Just like Jesus is fully God and independent of us. Just like a, a vine is in relationship with the branches, just like the relationship of a head to the body, and wonder of wonders, just like the relationship of a husband to his wife, 
It is in relationship between Jesus and his church, us, that somehow he is more completed, even though he is complete by himself. John Calvin, about 500 years ago, he put it this way. He's going to use some language that's a little outdated. He says, this is the highest honor of the church, that unless he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. Now, here's the confusing part. So he's not using the word imperfect like we would today. We think imperfect, we think like sinful or blemished or corrupted in some way. He's using it in a more original sense that is incomplete. So maybe you guys were language people. Maybe you studied some foreign languages and you know that there are different tenses. You've got a, a perfect tense and an imperfect tense. That's the same idea of what's being said here. When, when John says God, the Son of God reckons himself in some way to measure imperfect, he's not saying that there's sin in Jesus, that there's corruption in Jesus. He's saying that Jesus considers himself incomplete unless, to use John's words here, he is united to us, unless the groom is united with the bride. He goes on, what an encouragement it is for us to hear that not, not until he has us as one with himself is he complete in all his parts or does he wish to be regarded as whole? Now, depending on how we understand that language, that could be stretching it pretty far, but I think the point of Ephesians 1.23 and the metaphor later in Ephesians 5 of the bride of Christ being the church and what Kent and then John here are trying to communicate to us is this amazing, wondrous mystery that in essence and substance, Jesus is fully complete and self-contained, and yet he chooses in relationship to want to be with us, united with us as a head to a body, as a husband to a wife. And in some mysterious way that I just can't figure out how to put into words, he is the filler of all in all, and yet in that relationship that he chooses and wants for us, he is himself filled or fulfilled. Ephesians shows us that the church is the bride of Christ. Christ is our groom. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is our head. It's different than we normally think about church, right? Church isn't a building that religious things happen in. Church is not a dispenser of religious goods and services. It's not a club that we join to hang out with people who are like us. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. That is so much higher than how we normally think of church. Here's our, here's our big idea for today. God has shown his great power by raising Jesus from the dead and seating him in heaven. This same power saves us, makes us the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. That power that Paul wants us to know is the power of the resurrection that not only raises Jesus from the dead, but raises us from the dead and makes us the body and the bride of Christ. 
that power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. It is directed at you, those who believe, if you are in Christ. This is a mind-blowing and amazing thing. And I hope it causes you to want to give glory and honor to Jesus. The church is a beautiful, praiseworthy, honor-worthy thing. The church, as the bride of Christ, is worthy of our love and our devotion and our sacrifice. When I read this, as I try to process this and think about how I'm going to communicate to you, it encourages me, it reinforces in me my desire to give my life for the church. The picture of the church, the value of the church, the beauty of the church in these metaphors and in these verses, like that's worth devoting my life to. How much more is the groom worthy of that devotion? that honor, of that glory, of that praise. I mean, if, the, if, if we could see the church for the beautiful bride that she is being made into, we would, we would just fall on the ground in awe. But if we could see how much greater the groom is, the one who saved the church, and Ephesians 5 tells us, purified the church to present her to himself as a bride without spot or blemish, if we could see that groom... We think, well, the church is amazing. That is worthy of my life, sacrifice. But the groom, oh, he is even more worthy. It's amazing. So in a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing the song, Is He Worthy? Let me just read for you Revelation 5, 11 through 13. This is John looking off into the future, being given a glimpse and I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, Jesus, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, so this is the idea of every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. And in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing, honor, and glory, and might forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, yeah, we want to understand what all of this is saying, and yet our minds just can't, can't grasp it. So please help, help us to understand it a little more. Help us to to see the, the, the beauty and the, the glory of your church, and even more so the beauty and the glory of you, the groom for the bride. Lord, we, uh, we forget about you. We use you to get forgiveness and blessing and things like that. Lord, what we need to do is we need to submit to you. We need to honor you as Lord, we need to look to you as the head of the body, as the groom of the bride. And so, Lord, shape us, rework our hearts, rework our minds. The world is constantly trying to tell us that 
We are the boss. We are the authority. It's all about us. And the word tells us the opposite. You are the boss. You are the authority. It's all about you. So use your word to work in us. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Change our lives. Change the focus of our lives. Change the, the, the point of our lives. Change the priority of our lives to be more about you and more about the bride that you are purifying to present to yourself as perfect without spot and blemish. You are worthy of all of our praise, power, all of the glory, and you are worthy of our lives surrendered to you. In Jesus' name, amen.